Thank you all for being here today. Um, my name is Matthew Johnson. I'm a counsel to Senator John Cornyn of Texas, where I serve on his uh, Senate Judiciary Committee uh, staff. And uh, I want to welcome you to what um, we hope to be the first of many uh, of these types of gatherings on the Hill um, by the Congressional Staff Organization of the Federal Society. Um, Today's debate uh, is in the best tradition of the Federal Society uh, with a diversity and hopefully uh, what we're anticipating to be a, a very good clash of opinions. Senator Jeff Sessions of Alabama was kind enough uh, to join us today to share his thoughts on this important topic, uh, one that uh, is, is a great deal of the underpinning of our Constitution. Um, after a distinguished career as a federal prosecutor, state attorney general, uh, Senator Sessions was elected in 1996 to the U.S. Senate, where he uh, continues to serve uh, Alabama and the country and this nation um, as a champion of good government and conservative principles. Uh, I've had an opportunity and a delight to watch him firsthand on uh, the Judiciary Committee, and uh, he is a uh, uh, a true champion of the cause uh, and a decent and honorable man. In the interest of hearing from our distinguished panel and uh, uh, getting to that good clash of uh, opinions, I'm going to step aside and uh, ask Senator Sessions to come up. I hope you'll give him a round of applause and uh, we'll get started. Thank you. Thank you very, very much. This is a fabulous panel that you have assembled here today. I've got to tell you, uh, it's um, a real treat. I wish I could be here throughout the, um, uh, the discussion because it's an important matter. Uh, the Federalist Society has played a key role in changing uh, the uh, mindset of law in America. I've traveled the world a good bit now. I, I go to different places, a lot of third world countries, and I will tell you I am more convinced uh, to the core of my being that the strength of America is the rule of law, and it's even deeper than the words on paper. It's that the American people bow down and accept it, even if they don't like the result, they'll accept it. And it's a cultural, historical thing that's been building for hundreds of years, uh, and it's important to us. Somebody said, we, we know we passed this, we created a rule of law in America. Well, I keep remembering that great deal when John Adams defended the British soldiers for shooting people in Boston before the American Revolution. And there was a rule of law here before the Revolution. When you don't have one, and you try to create one, was it Abinicio or something, uh, out of nothing, like Iraq, then you got a big, big, big challenge. That's all I'm going to say about it. It's, it's huge. And it's not easy. And people don't trust themselves. And even in the South, in the worst of civil rights days, judges made, made these rulings. And for the most part, they got executed, even when people fought them. They just got mad about it. But they, they, they hunkered down and, and did what the law said. Um, Federalism is important. It comes up all the time in this Congress. All the time. People on, appear to be on both sides of the issue. 
one week, both the same day, much less the same week. It is. So you're going to be leading us in a discussion to try to have some principled approach to it. They got all excited, um, Ted, about the um, um, Bill Pryor. He was up for confirmation in uh, uh, Attorney General in Alabama, and he'd taken the position that um, uh, the state of Alabama wasn't bound by everything in the Violence Against Women Act or the uh, Disabilities Act, and oh, they hollered and screamed. But it, just tell you this thought on the subject before you and, and I will hear from my experts. When I became an assistant United States attorney in, in the mid-70s and then as United States attorney in the 80s, crimes, for the most part, were pretty clearly drawn. And um, it would be like uh, theft from interstate ship. It's not a federal crime to this day to go out and steal something from your neighbor's house. Um, it was the motor vehicle theft law was interstate transportation of a stolen motor vehicle. It had to be stolen and it had to be transported in interstate commerce. Um, uh, theft, uh, interstate transportation of stolen property it had to be $5,000 and it had to be transported in interstate commerce. Every crime that you had had an articulated interstate nexus in the crime itself, virtually all of them. And so we've gotten away from that now. And uh, sometimes the Supreme Court rulings have been based on, well, if you had articulated an interstate nexus, then this, this crime might have been valid. You didn't do so, so it's not valid. Uh, so we can, I'm sure you'll be talking about those kind of things. I do think that as a practical matter, some issues involving the interstate commerce clause uh, may need to be bigger. As much as I am of local and, and federalist rights of states, uh, things like uh, insurance policies. Why do you have to, you know, every state bureaucratic group gets to write all the rules for insurance, and you can't sell insurance in a state unless you bow down and genuflect before some state guy. Uh, I mean, this is pretty uh, insurance. Things are now sort of interstate commerce. Really, it's uh, out there. I don't know where you draw those lines, but uh, when you have people on both sides of that argument, driven by their own self-interest, really. Uh, so you, some of you guys need to be thinking the principal approach to how to handle some of these issues. Some things might be better uh, if they're nationally uh, standards. Uh, everything um, that flows in commerce you can't tax interstate commerce. Free flow of commerce is important. Uh, that's what the national government is empowered to do under the Constitution. And then finally, I would suggest to you there's a question of what's lawful and what's good policy. Just because it's lawfully a federal uh, ability to act doesn't necessarily mean it's the right thing to do. So y'all have a great day. I look forward to visiting, listening on some of this. Again, uh, I want to thank the Federalist Society for helping change the legal climate in America today, Leonard. You know, I'm, this, when Ted came with, early with Ronald Reagan to the Department of Justice, and Ed Meese made a speech about our original intent, you would have thought 
the republic was going to fall. It was unbelievable. And now people can go out and actually discuss those issues, if not gain a lot of support publicly, and uh, not be chastised for it. And the Federalist Society has been the intellectual foundation of all that. Thank you for what you do. Thank you, Senator Sessions. On, on behalf of the Board of the Federalist Society, we appreciate all you're doing. So thank you. I'm David McIntosh, uh, one of the board members, and our moderator today. Um, I will restrain my natural impulse being back up here on the hill to give you a long speech, um, which I used to do quite frequently. Um, but I have to tell you, I, I, Stephen was kind enough to come and get me. I, us house guys get a little bit lost over here on the Senate side. And so it was kind of you to, to make sure I got here. Um, our topic today is fair weather federalism, um, or you might think of it as result-oriented federalism. I'm tempted to quote the line much quoted from Casablanca where the inspector comes in and is told that there may be gambling going on. He said, I'm shocked, shocked to hear that there may be gambling in this premises. Um, it, it is Congress. It is a political body. And yet... Most members that I had the chance to work with, and, and I think Senator Sessions would agree, try to do our duty or their duty now on, based on constitutional principles and as they understand them. And so I think we can provide a valuable forum for the debate of one of the key principles, the division of power between the federal government and the states here today. As Matthew mentioned, it will be the first of many that we hope to bring up on Capitol Hill of experts from diverse views and provide a little lunch along the way, but give you an opportunity to hear from them, talk to them, and interact with them. So without further ado, I'm going to introduce our first speaker. Uh, he is Professor Jonathan Turley of GW Law School, um, was one of the youngest chaired faculty members there and has become quite renowned both in the area of torts and in military cases, uh, representing some of the more interesting ones we've read about recently, the Area 151 workers in Nevada, the nuclear couriers in Oak Ridge, Tennessee, the Rocky Flats grand jury, um, Dr. Fortich, I think I've pronounced that right, I hope, um, in the Elizabeth Morgan case. Uh, but one of the interesting things in his bio is that a recent survey by Judge Posner of law professors who were cited by appellate judges found that he was the second most cited law professor in the country. And so we're fortunate to have him today. Perhaps he will uh, share with us some of his writings and federalism that will either have been or one day be cited in some of those cases. Professor Turley, thank you. Um, thank you very much, David. And I want to thank Senator Sessions for being with us today. I know his schedule is enormously busy these days. I think there are a few things going on in Capitol Hill I've been hearing about. Uh, I'm here to talk about federalism. Uh, and I, you know, what's fascinating about the federalism subject is that those of us who are big advocates of federalism often view federalism in different ways. You can have a sort of states' rights federalism, a libertarian federalism, a good government federalism. Uh, and where I come at this question is where I usually uh, begin and end, and that is I basically start with the framers. Uh, we're blessed with a constitutional system that was uh, largely designed by a genius, a sort of wonky genius of James Madison. 
Uh, and he created a system that was built to last. It's a system that was designed for bad weather. That's the difference between the U.S. Constitution and, and for example, many of the constitutions that would fail later in France. Uh, you know, the French constitutions would often talk about their aspirations, the things they have in common. They were often written at the wrong moment, what I call the Bud Light moment, I love you man moment, uh, when you would overthrow a government and you'd write all the things that you have in common. Uh, and Madison didn't do that. He said that if you want a system that lasts, you have to understand as much about human beings as you do government and that human beings are naturally fractured. We, we tend to join factions, and those factions are the things that can destroy a government. So he designed a system that, that accepted that factions existed, and a system that had, as you know, a system of checks and balances. The most important single value in the U.S. Constitution was federalism. And Madison said that, you know, he had, this was a system in which there were, quote, few and defined rights in the federal government. Uh, and he then said the state government rights are numerous and indefinite. That the idea was that the federal government would be a government of limited powers and that what governs most citizens, what affects their lives the most, would remain state governments. The interesting is that Hamilton, who was a big advocate of the federal government in many respects agreed with that. They believed that a strong state system was necessary when he said that, that power being almost always the rival of power, that you need to have a state system that is at least equal in authority to the federal government. And in fact, the framers viewed the states of greater authority. And finally, Hamilton in Federal uh, 28 said, it may safely be received as an axiom in our political system that the state governments will, in all possible contingencies, afford complete security against invasions of the public liberties by the national authority. So when the framers were talking about tyranny, they were as often talking about the federal government as they were foreign tyrants. They were very, very concerned, and many of you who are students of the Constitution know that the Bill of Rights was crafted in large part to satisfy those who believed that the government needed to be uh, restrained and limited even further. So you have a system in which the states have this preeminent role and where the federal government has a secondary role. And you look back at those statements and they seem almost quaint and naive today. That Congress has yielded to its temptation, more often than not, to get into state issues because state issues are sort of the forbidden fruit of our constitutional system, right? They're, they're great for people on the Hill, right? Instead of having to deal with budgets and taxes and things like that, you can deal with gun-free school zones and you can deal with protection of women and it, all these great issues that you know your citizens back in your district resonate with but they just happen to be state issues. All the really exciting stuff, with the exception of foreign relations, is largely kept in the states. And I have to say that our members of Congress have followed generally Oscar Wilde's rule that the only way to be rid of temptation is to yield to it. <laughs> uh, but what happened is that much of this would have still worked out in the sense that the framers put into the Constitution powerful structural guarantees to protect federalism. And then 1913 happened. Does anyone remember what happened in 1913? No? Very good. 
the 16th and 17th Amendments uh, where a major blow occurred against federalism. And the first one was federal income tax. Now, that may not seem to be a blow against, uh, against federalism, but it certainly is in terms of states' rights because before, Congress couldn't get too far ahead of states because most taxation remained with the states. If you wanted to do anything, you needed to work with the state. And so the federal government, until that point, had a very limited budget, and they could do very limited things that encouraged cooperation. The second change was the direct election of senators, which has many good things about it. I think it was a good thing. But the effect was that senators become, became untethered from the state legislators, which used to elect them. You, you couldn't get too far ahead of your state. You, you certainly couldn't abuse your state. Because those, those legislators in the state senate are the ones that are deciding whether to send you back to Congress. So two massive structural protections, practical and constitutional, were eliminated in 1913 just before the federal government exploded in size. The result has been horrific that today the very notion that states are equal partners to the federal government is laughable. Not only that, but members of Congress now routinely um, collect more in taxes for the sole purpose of giving them back to the state with conditions. So every time, I'm in, every time I testify in Congress and a member of Congress says, well, why can't we just tie this to highway bill funds and we'll just say you can't get highway or transportation funds unless you do X. And it just makes me cringe because it's basically an admission we've taken more money than we need, and we're using this to essentially deputize state officers to do our bidding. We're not going to let them disagree with us. So they've become an appendage of the federal budget. Now, the Supreme Court, therefore, has become much more important in protecting federalism now that those structural guarantees have fallen away. That's why the Supreme Court justices have to be much, much more aggressive, uh, and in fact, they were. When you see United States versus uh, New York versus United States in 1992, and Lopez in 95, uh, and Prince in 1997, and Morrison in 2000, you had the so-called federalism revolution. But the Supreme Court has begun to change its tune. When you look at uh, Gonzalez versus Raich in, in 2005, and the recent Gonzalez versus Oregon decisions, those are the ones involving uh, medical marijuana in the first case and assisted suicide in the second one. And what was startling in Gonzalez versus Oregon with assisted suicide is that the main people that had supported federalism on the court gave it scant attention and, if anything, indicated that they were not as so motivated. Even Thomas uh, referred to it, I believe, as water under, over the bridge or over the dam, uh, sort of dismissing the issue of whether the federalism revolution is continuing. Now... I know I've got to sit down, uh, which, uh, since I'm a professor trained to speak in 50-minute increments, is very hard. But um, I will say only this, that there is something essential at stake that I believe that even some of the members on the Supreme Court who have been past supporters of federalism are forgetting. That the idea of federalism is not just about a convenient check between two systems of government. It is also based on the idea that Power is held safest when it's held the closest to you. That we want power to be close to the people on the state level where they have more interaction. And what we have today, which I've, I've spoken about before, is what I call a virtual democracy. That 
we're becoming a virtual democracy where most of you have very little interaction with your neighbors, particularly those of you who are young. You probably have more interaction with people on the Internet than you do with people next door. And you certainly don't identify yourself anymore with your state and certainly not your city. And that decoupling from our local political units is extremely dangerous because it means that our lives are controlled here, far away from our homes in Washington, where people do feel that they have very little role and very little influence. I think that's going to change who we are. That's not what was intended by the Madisonian system. And we spend very little time asking whether our system can exist in virtual state. I don't think it can. And federalism is the key to returning it uh, to a more Madisonian model. Thank you very much. Thank you, Jonathan. Um, our next speaker is Michael Grieva, who is the John G. Serrell Scholar at the American Enterprise Institute. Um, prior to joining AI, uh, Michael was received his PhD at Cornell and also founded and, and directed the Center for Individual Rights, where he, as a non-lawyer, directed some of the most important litigations, U.S., United States v. Morrison and the Rosenberger case. Um, but he's also a prolific writer on federalism. I recently had the wonderful opportunity to read an advanced draft of a book that he and Professor Epstein are going to be publishing this year on uh, a series of essays on federalism. So without further ado, let me give you Michael Breeden. Thanks, David. Um, my normal spiel is to be conciliatory, mild-mannered, and middle of the roadish. I want to switch gears today and be contentious. I want to spend eight minutes demolishing or at least casting doubt on what I think are four myths about federalism. First, um, and this is the myth that's sort of or misperception that's inherent in the title, the complaint is everybody is opportunistic about federalism and that's just terrible. I think opportunism about federalism is the constitutional norm and is the constitutional expectation and that is a good thing. And this holds true at three levels. Uh, at one level, opportunism means to be a consequentialist about federalism, to judge it by its consequences. Well, what else would you judge it by? Um, Justice O'Connor once wrote, we would have to enforce federalism even if it were no good for everybody, anyone. Well, with respect, Justice O'Connor, no. If it were no good for anybody, you should do with it what the Supreme Court has done with half the Constitution. Ignore it. Um, second, uh, uh, the second, I mean, the second version of this is, well, people always sort of um, advocate federalism when it's good for themselves or their friends. Um, it's a matter of, of constituencies whose ox is being gored. Um, well, that is the constitutional plan. The Constitution constitutes something because the structural provisions of the Constitution attract constituencies over time a constitution or a constitutional rule that doesn't attract a constituency is not a principled rule or a principled federalism, it's a dead federalism. Um, the third version of this is, well, if nobody is principled about federalism, then federalism atrophies and, and dies. I think that's wrong again. The First Amendment has been endorsed primarily throughout American history on, a, uh, on an op opportunistic basis. When Justice Brennan wrote the modern First Amendment, 
um, it's inextricably, inextricably intertwined with the civil rights movement. It was the point of the First Amendment was to speak truth to power. Now, of course, in modern days, uh, the left is um, opposed to free speech, especially if it's political speech, especially if it's during an election season. That is why we have the McCain-Feingold law. Uh, so the constituencies here have flipped. But that's a good thing, um, because if the same constituencies on federalism were always on the same side, the system would be much less moderate and much less stable. Um, if you can imagine yourself being on the other side of the debate uh, somewhere down the road, you have to somehow moderate your position, and that's a good thing. The federalism problem, if any, with respect to these constituency, orient, uh, or constituency orientations is that uh, federalism's supposed defenders, namely the states, won't show up for the debate, and I'll come back to that point. Second point, federalism is really about centralization versus devolution, or states' rights. Um, that is, of course, part of it, but that's not uh, the biggest part. Uh, the biggest part of the debate, it seems to me, is between different versions of federalism. So some people, let's say Erwin Chemerinsky, for a random example, defend a federalism that is effectively a trial lawyer's bill of rights. I defend a very different federalism that would uh, discipline government at all levels. Um, he doesn't much like my federalism. I don't like his. Um, but these are both federalisms, and that is what we are arguing about, not centralization versus decentralization. Third point, um, the fe central federalism problem on, in our day, it is frequently said, is the federal government is trampling and imposing on the states. It's micromanaging everything. Well, there's a great deal of truth to that, but we also have the opposite problem, namely state overreach into inherently national and indeed international affairs. Um, the litigation uh, explosion uh, is eff effectively a federalism problem. AG overreach is effectively a federalism problem. Uh, California has tried to regulate um, the affairs uh, of German citizens with German insurers, the contracts they signed in 1932 on German soil. Um, that was mercifully stopped by the Supreme Court, but Calif that's not the only idea in that vein that California has had. You look at their privacy regulations, uh, Internet regulation, and so on and so forth. Global warming. California believes that it can govern the world, whereas the empirical evidence indicates that it cannot govern itself. Um, the interesting thing is that we don't have the kind of federal government that's built to stop it. Um, the SEC could have stopped Elliot Spitzer under the Securities Act. Congress could have stopped Elliot Spitzer. Nobody did. The system is not built that way. Never in American history have the states exerted so much control over the interstate commerce of the United States. Fourth point. The myth is that states are authentic interpreters and advocates of federalism. I believe that federalism is far too important to be left to the states. Um, to listen to the states on federalism is like listening to the Chamber of Commerce on free markets. They'll turn it into a racket. There is this romantic notion 
um, that states will resist federal authority and that they will defend their autonomy. Autonomy meaning something like self-determination, free from federal oversight. But that's not really true. Um, states as states are simply an abstraction. States consist of politicians. What do these politicians want to do? Answer, they want the freedom to regulate and tax their own citizens and then hand the rents over to their friends so as to get themselves re-elected. How do they do that? The first thing they have to do is to eliminate competition from other states. Suppose states were actually in charge of regulating labor conditions they would have to take responsibility for regulating labor conditions in their own states, which means if they overregulate, the industry goes elsewhere, which is the absolute last thing they want. So the slogan of the states um, is sort of like the slogan of the uh, Jamaican Tourism Bureau, come govern us. Um, Senator Sessions uh, mentioned the Morrison case um, at, at the beginning, um, the, the uh, violence Against Women Act case, there was exactly one state that said, you, can't, you Congress cannot regulate this. That will be the state of Alabama, uh, uh, whose AG was then the great Bill Pryor, who understands federalism at an uncommonly deep level. There were 35 states on the other side and said, oh, we are so sexist, we need you, federal government, to regulate these matters. There's 35 states plus the uh, Commonwealth of Puerto Rico, which is not a state, but nonetheless it's firmly in favor of states' rights. <laughs> the second thing that states want is transfer payments. They do not want their own to tax, have to tax their own citizens, rather they want to do the following. Have the federal government tax people, have the dollar spent a very expensive night on the town in Washington, then have the dollars go back to Albany, spend another expensive night on the town, and only then hand the proceeds over to the intended beneficiaries, for example, the National Education Association. <laughs> and the third thing that states will want is to regulate and tax on an extraterritorial basis. Why? Well, if you tax and regulate people who are not citizens of your state, they cannot vote you out of office, and they cannot run away from you. And so what you want, ideally, as a state is a mutual exploitation pact. I regulate your citizens, and you regulate mine, and the citizens will be none the wiser. That is what the National Association of Attorneys General does for a living. The prize here, I think, goes to the person who can figure out a federalism for American citizens and not for states. Federalism that serves the great hap or the happiness of the great body of the people, as Madison said. I have some ideas in that direction, but I'll keep them to myself. <laughs> Michael, we thought you were perhaps veering back to the center there. The, uh, <laughs> well done. <laughs> um, our, third, our third speaker today is uh, our guest, Douglas Kendall, who is the founder and executive director of the Community Rights Council. Uh, he spends his time in the council's efforts in representing local governments um, before the Supreme Court and in the state courts particularly in litigation revolving the takings clause and the protection of individual property rights. 
Um, Beckles, thank you for coming. Thanks for having me. A couple of years ago, I edited and co-authored a book called Redefining Federalism, Listening to the States and Shaping Our Federalism, which I think you'll realize right away puts me in a bit of contrast with with Michael. In, In writing a book called Redefining Federalism, the first challenge you face is redefining a term where nobody really has that clear of a sense of what the term means in the first place. The reason there's so much confusion around the meaning of the term federalism, I'd posit, is that throughout the nation's history, advocates of particular causes have taken a fact, the fact that our framers established a federal system with powers divided among the federal and regional governments, and tried to turn that fact into an ideology. Now, that ideology has changed radically over the course of our nation's history. In the founding era, the Federalists were the proponents of a strong national government. Now, it's, it's about 100 degrees op- 180 degrees opposite. If you say you're a Federalist now, the general presumption is that you're in favor of devolution to the states. The book, our book, argues for a return to a definition of federalism as fact rather than ideology. Federalism, as our framers designed it, is about assigning government authority to the correct level in our constitutional structure. The framers wanted a strong federal government. The entire purpose of the Constitutional Convention was to remedy the flaws in the Articles of of Confederation. They also wanted to ensure that the states continued to play a critical role in our constitutional structure, and they built safeguards in to protect the states. Today, almost no one seems to care about federalism as a system of government. Now, for the most part, people on the left have decided not to play in the game of of what federalism is at all, Um, turned off by the use of federalism and and the the association with states' rights in uh, defending slavery and then delaying civil rights laws. Liberals have basically decided that federalism is bad which is left to conservatives the entire playing field of defining what is federalism. Now, there's a war going on within conservative circles about what federalism means. States' rights federalists believe that the federal government has grown far too strong and powerful, and they invoke federalism to promote a devolution of government authority back to the states. A second and increasingly powerful uh, ideology of federalism, and I think Michael kind of summarizes this in his his presentation, is libertarian federalism, which is hostile to environmental safeguards at all levels. Uh, So Michael has called states the the real real enemies of real federalism, and he views his mission as convincing conservatives to get over their terribly sentimental notions about the virtues of state governments. I don't support either states' rights federalism or libertarian federalism. I think libertarian federalism is an oxymoron. Federalism is about government and how it works. It's not about no government. Put another way, federalism is mainly about allocating the powers that government does have, not about determining what powers it has to begin with. I don't think that it's particularly credible either to see an anti-federal bias in the system designed by the framers, as 
Judge Michael O'Connell has stated, the rules laid down by the framers are skewed in favor of federal power. What I think is a genius of the founders is a recognition that government works best when there is a careful division of government responsibilities among federal, state, and local actors. As Justice O'Connor says in Gregory v. Ashcroft, our federalist structure preserves to the people numerous advantages. The first advantage she mentions is that it assures decentralized government that will be more sensitive to the diverse needs of our heterogeneous society. I think these statements pretty accurately describe what I view as federalism as a neutral principle. Now, as a quote by Justice O'Connor indicates, what's forcing Americans most now to deal with federalism, to seek a meaning for federalism, is the Supreme Court, which in a series of five to four rulings has sought to define what the court has historically called our federalism. I think the court and the majority deserves praise for putting this issue on the table. The problem is that the court's rulings to date have been both chaotic and controversial. Chaotic because they protect federalism a lot in some areas and not a lot at all in other areas. Controversial because this pattern of rulings seems to track more the political ideologies of the justices than the rules laid down by our framers. Far more compelling, I think, is the views of federalism expressed in a series of amicus briefs filed by state attorney generals in these federalism cases. Now, Michael says that the states haven't shown up. Well, they have shown up. They're just not saying what he wants to hear, which is why our book, The Redefining Federalism, has a subtitle, Listening to the States. We look at those briefs in some detail, and the reason we did this was because the Supreme Court has said repeatedly that federalism is about protecting the autonomy and dignity of the states. Well, if federalism is about protecting the states, why don't we listen to them? And if you listen to them, what they're saying is that the Supreme Court's federalism is a lot like, they view the Supreme Court's federalism like Goldilocks viewed the three bears' porridge. They're too hot in some areas, too cold in others, and just about right in a final set. And I think the lessons, while they're directing their comments to the Supreme Court, I think the lessons from what they're saying applies in the political context as well. The states have said not to go to the court, not to go too far in limiting the ability of the federal government to address national problems. The best example is a recent case in 2006 called Rapanos, where 33 states weighed in in favor of broad federal Clean Water Act authority. The reason is simple. We can't protect our lakes, our streams. We're all upstream from other states. We can't protect our waters, our fishermen, without a federal role in this problem. Now, the support for the federal role by the states isn't limitless. By and large, they supported the ruling in Lopez where the court struck down the Guns-Free School Zone Act because, essentially, the Congress did nothing to demonstrate why a federal role was needed. And I think the Lopez case is a great lesson for Congress about that you have to do, if you're going to intrude into areas traditionally held by the states, you need to do your homework, your job in documenting why a federal role is necessary. The states have also argued that the Supreme Court is far too cool 
in protecting federalism and its rulings under the Supremacy Clause and the Dormant Commerce Clause, where the court has repeatedly struck down state legislation with little or no evidence that Congress intended to displace the states. Relying heavily on a report done by then-Judge Ken Starr, states have repeatedly advocated for the court to jettison its obstacle preemption doctrine and for it to give meaning to or give more than lip service to their clear statement rule and their presumption against preemption. Equally forcefully, of course, states have asked this body, have asked Congress to do the same thing and to be very clear about when and to what extent they want to displace the state. And I think that's an important lesson as well. Finally, the states have viewed as just about right the Supreme Court's rulings under the Tenth and Eleventh Amendment. These rulings limit the authority of Congress to allow individuals to sue states for money damages and to commandeer state officials into the service of federal objectives. These doctrines don't really limit federal power. They just kind of limit the way the federal government can do them, can achieve its objectives. And the court has said very forcefully that the federal government can't make the states become the de facto political subdivisions of the federal government. The lessons here are basically ones of manners federalism. And for the same reason that the federal government shouldn't impose unfunded mandates on the states, I think Congress should think long and hard before trying to force state officials to perform federal regulatory functions. Michael has asserted that federalism has to be an ideological affair. I don't agree. And I'll end by simply reading the final paragraph of Redefining Federalism, which I think captures what I call federalism as a neutral principle. Federalism, as explained by the states, is not a zero-sum game where every expansion of the national government is viewed as an intrusion into the power of the states. Federalism instead is about respect for the critical structural role the states play in our federal system. This understanding of federalism restores it to its proper place as a neutral principle, not as a partisan political tool. The federal system bequeathed to us by our framers is not a means to a conservative or liberal end. The ends it serves are a better political process, more robust political participation, and the allocation of power in a way that improves how government serves its citizens. These ends are the essence of democracy and ones that all Americans, whatever their political views, should hope to attain. Thanks. Thank you, Douglas. Thank you. Our final speaker for the panel, and then I want to open it up for questions after that, is someone who really needs no introduction up here, Ted Olson, who has now, at many points in his career, been a partner at Gibson, Dun & Crutcher, but also served very ably at the Justice Department in this administration as Solicitor General and the Reagan administration as an Assistant Attorney General, and has argued and thought about federalism in cases before the Supreme Court. Ted? Yes, I haven't written any books about federalism, and I don't teach it, so what am I doing here? I have argued a few cases that involve federalism. Doug and I were talking about that before, and I was thinking about the first case that I argued in the Supreme Court, which was 
Garcia versus San Antonio Transit, which is a Tenth Amendment case where, which where the Supreme Court was uh, bouncing back and forth in those years. Um, and I argued a dormant commerce clause case last year that went off on on um, uh, standing grounds. But in between, I've argued several cases involving preemption. As I was thinking about it, as the others were speaking, it seemed to me worthwhile to mention a few of the provisions in the Constitution that we talk about. When we talk about federalism, um, we've, most of them have been mentioned here, but it's worth enumerating those provisions in the Constitution that we talk about. Of course, there's the Commerce Clause that gives the power of the federal government uh, to regulate interstate commerce. And it wasn't just a strong federal government that the framers of the Constitution wanted. Uh, the Supreme Court just recently said, and it said over and over again in the history, the Commerce Clause was the framers' response to the central problems giving rise to the Constitution itself, the need for a central power to regulate interstate commerce. Um, that is what brought those people together in Philadelphia more than anything else. So the Commerce Clause um, is an important part of the structure of federalism. The Commerce Clause, of course, has two components, the part of the that, that gives the power to the federal government and the so-called dormant or negative Commerce Clause that inhibits the states from taking certain actions that impair the flow of interstate commerce. Then there's the necessary and proper clause. Justice Scalia made this point very clearly in the case involving the medical marijuana that it was the, uh, and not just the Commerce Clause, but the power of the federal government under the necessary and proper clause to do those things which are necessary to implement the power that is explicitly given to regulate commerce, it's sometimes necessary to do things with respect to activities in the states that aren't commerce at all. Um, possessing marijuana isn't commerce. But the necessary and proper clause as an, a, a means of implementing the commerce clause the Supreme Court held in that case allowed the federal government to regulate the possession or, or personal use of marijuana. Uh, there's the Supremacy Clause, of course, which gives rise to all of the preemption cases. Um, and those cases are different. Every case, the Supreme Court has a preemption case every, uh, several preemption cases, it seems, every year. And every specific statute, whether, whether it's a statute that regulate, um, that allows the federal government to regulate medical devices or tobacco or automobile safety, or motorboats, or whatever it might be. All of the um, <clears throat> examples of the exercise of the commerce power uh, by the Congress of the United States implicates in one way or another um, the, the, preempt the preemptive authority of the federal government to keep the states out. And the Supreme Court has always looked at those as matters of congressional intent, and Congress uses different words different legislative schemes, it seems, in almost every one of those cases. And so the Supreme Court's got to figure it all out. When and to what degree are activities that happen at the state level prevented from happening at the federal level? Um, and then, then there's the Tenth Amendment, of course, which reserves powers to the states. I think Jonathan was the one who said it's, it's so much fun <clears throat> for the federal government to do the things that um, the states um, would like to do or are supposed to do. Well, um, and the, the extension of that is that it's, you can imagine a system, and I, and I think that uh, Doug mentioned this, or, and, and um, um, Michael as well, you can imagine a system how much fun it would be to have all these policy ideas and to 
pass a statute that requires some other agency to do the policy to implement your policy ideas and make them pay for it so that they have to not only pay for it but take responsibility for it when the citizens are mad about the amount that it costs to register a gun or to do things like that and then they get mad because they have to do that at the state level but the federal government members of Congress have passed that statute passed the expenses on to the state and passed the responsibility and the blame on the state officials how much fun that is the same thing was with respect to the disposition and storage of radioactive waste essentially the statute required the states to take responsibility to do that in fact it even required state legislatures to take steps to implement the federal statute so of course the expense and the blame was at the states but it was people here in Congress that were doing that the Supreme Court says no there are some lines that the Tenth Amendment imposes to prevent that sort of thing from happening then the Eleventh Amendment prevents the federal government from imposing obligations on the states themselves with respect to in some circumstances how they must treat employees or how they must pay people and the Supreme Court has gone further and said the Eleventh Amendment does not just prevent the suits from being filed in federal courts against the state but it provides a structural immunity to the states from imposition of federal powers under certain circumstances there's a couple more provisions that we don't always think of in talking about federalism the spending clause the Supreme Court's had a number of cases before it recently with respect to and one of you was talking about the spending clause where they take the money from the citizens and then give it back to the states but subject to restrictions you must do this with respect to how fast cars can go on your roads you must do this with respect to this you must do this a way of exercising federal power and making it take place at the state by taking money from the taxpayers and then sending it back with these strings attached and then in a few cases the privileges and immunities clause of the Constitution has been held to impose restrictions one example was a case called Supreme Court v. Piper where the Supreme Court held that New Hampshire cannot impose residency requirements on attorneys for being licensed to practice law in New Hampshire under the privileges and immunities clause a restriction by the Constitution under what the state could do it's worthwhile mentioning some of those things because some of them are restrictions on federal government some of those are reservations of power to the people and some of them are reservations of power to the state I think of federalism as just another part of checks and balances we have horizontal checks and balances by the three branches of government here the judiciary, legislative and executive branch of government and the internal check in the Congress between the two branches of Congress federalism is the vertical system of checks and powers the federal government is limited in the powers that it can exercise with respect to the states and the states are limited as to the powers that they can exercise with respect to the commerce clause and things of that nature the Supreme Court is not completely clear with respect to where those limits are especially in the case of the dormant commerce clause the case involving that's been mentioned before the medical marijuana and the drugs that you take to kill yourself is a good example the Supreme Court went one way on one of those cases and another way on the next case 
so that so that the answer is that the states can't legalize medical marijuana, but the states can legalize drugs to use you use to commit suicide. And I've tried to synthesize what the message is. It's okay to prohibit drugs to turn you on, but it's not okay to prohibit drugs to turn you off. <laughs> that is an important federalist principle. <laughs> it's important to think about when we think about uh, the Commerce Clause, uh, not just the growth of the federal government um, when we think of federalism, but look, think about how much commerce has changed. Um, and I will just say a word or two about this. We, we don't even have to um, think about it very long. Compared to 220 years ago, um, imagine a commerce that takes place in seconds through the Internet uh, and utterly international with all these treaties that we have. Uh, the uh, outsourcing of labor and um, intelligence to other countries and, the, and, and all of these things that have changed so much. Um, uh, pollution, uh, and I think someone else before me mentioned that. It travels throughout the world. You can't restrict uh, where the air is going to go. If you run a coal mine, where is the where is the sulfur or going to go? Where is the carbon dioxide emitted from automobiles going to go? It's going to go all over the world. It's not going to stay in the United States. None of those things were true, except in a very limited extent, uh, it's a couple hundred years ago. So the way government has to deal with those problems with the authorities given by the Constitution has to change. Another thing that's changed enormously is tort law. And I think about this in the context of um, federalism a lot. Now things can happen in state courts that affect the national economy just in one case. Uh, the concept of private attorneys general bringing actions on behalf of citizens as a whole, uh, class actions where one lawyer with one or two clients can actually represent millions of clients. Um, <clears throat> we have a case in our firm against Walmart that involves literally, potentially, billions of dollars because of the class action device. Punitive damages. We've all read about and talked about the case where one state court decision in one case can essentially regulate the temperature at which coffee is marketed and sold anywhere in the United States. And the, I mentioned the coffee case because everybody heard about it, but it applies to virtually every product. When a state court imposes a $50 million punitive damage award because of the airbag wasn't done right or the roof wasn't strong enough in a car or some product, a medical device wasn't made to a certain specification, that changes for all of us the way medical devices or other products must be manufactured, not just in Oregon or California or Illinois, but everywhere in the country. Um, so that is a legitimate concern of Congress because that 12-person jury is regulating interstate commerce in a very significant way. Punitive damages is just one example. There are in many states now these unfair consumer practice acts by which someone can bring a lawsuit against a company charging an unfair consumer practice even without buying the product. California's law, for example, there was a case that got to the Supreme Court involving Nike. Someone, an individual, hadn't even bought any shoes, was bringing a case against the Nike company, complaining that Nike was unfairly and um, 
deceptively stating that they were paying fair wages and treating workers in Indonesia or far, far away from the United States fairly when in fact they weren't. That was the allegation. So that case involved a potential decision by a state court which would affect the things that Nike could say about its products all over the world. Um, that's another example. Now, there's, then there's a, the device of the nuisance suit. A court in, in New, I guess it's Rhode Island, somewhere in New England, has said that uh, all lead paint manufacturers can be sued and they're, they're held liable for things that happened decades before, whether or not the plaintiff could prove that the company was actually responsible for that particular paint in that particular house or anything like that. Uh, Attorney General Lockyer in California has brought a suit against all of the automobile companies, blaming them under a nuisance theory for global warming and asking for an injunction um, from a court against the automobile companies for doing what is it's really not clear since automobiles are legitimate in California and the largest purchaser of automobiles in California is California, the state of California. Um, I just mentioned those things because the things that we used to think of as the province of state governments, uh, the safety of products or tort cases between an individual and a doctor or a hospital or something, now because of the vehicle of punitive damages can change the practice of medicine, can change the marketing and manufacture of products and become a national problem. So of course Congress is interested in things like punitive damages or tort reform, civil justice reform, because civil justice reform has taken over the responsibilities of regulating the production and marketing of products. Well, those are some of the things that have occurred to me in thinking about this subject, and I just throw them out. Um, I hope I haven't exceeded my, my time constraints. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you to each of our panelists. This was, this was extremely well done. Let me open it up now for questions. We don't have the mic set up where we can hand you one, so they've asked me to repeat it so that uh, we're going to make this program available to others on a recording. Um, but uh, please stand up, introduce yourself, and ask your question. Madison also made clear that most of the authority that goes to governing 
would remain with the states. And clearly that is no longer the case. I mean, I would really find it amazing that any citizen of this country views the federal government as a secondary player where the majority of their lives are controlled by the states. And I believe that when you have checks and balances, it doesn't mean that you have equal power. I don't think the framers intended the federal government and the states to have equal power. I think they intended the states to have more power. And I think there's a lot of reason for that. Real quickly, the question was whether you wanted to qualify in light of Federalist No. 10. Michael, do you have a comment to that? Yeah. I think you're onto something. And I think actually at the end of the day, you're right. Look, with respect to is there some balance in the system to the effect that states will fight back against the federal government? No. The outcome, if you read the Federalist Papers, it could be anything. It could be a very, very powerful central government. It could be a very localized and state-based system. And it depends on a number of factors. What you have to ask yourself, look, what is it exactly that is in the Federalist Paper, in the Federalist mind? What is supposed to stabilize the system? What exactly is it that keeps the federal government from overreaching? And the answer is not at all the enumerated powers doctrine. Madison knew very well that that, at the end of the day, is not a judicially protectable line. What was supposed to stabilize the system is sorting. That is to say, due to the electoral mechanisms, the legislators at the federal level would just be better than these hacks at the local level. And they would look to the grand objects of national defense and interstate commerce. And that would be plenty of employment for them. And they would just think of local and state affairs as too stupid and too quotidian to be worth their while. Well, it turned out a year later that that didn't really work because all these pigs came crawling out of the woodwork and managed to get themselves elected to Congress. And when that happens, the federal legislature all of a sudden turns universalistic and employs itself with all these ridiculous local affairs. And if the sorting mechanism doesn't work, the system doesn't work. You're bound to get a system where sooner or later everything will be distributed from Washington or under its auspices. Just a couple of things. One is that there still is a tremendous amount of law and a lot of the law that people care the most about that is at the state and local level. When you talk about trust in the states, torts, family law, all these things, there still remains a great deal of law that is being respected at the state level. Now, I think the Lopez case is a warning that Congress could go even there. And I think there are some other warnings that we see. And I think the Lopez case is a good decision because it kind of puts a bit of a barrier between that. But it's not accurate to say that the federal government has federalized everything. There are still important areas, important to all of us, that are controlled at the state level. And the second thing is that Jonathan talked about the 16th and 17th Amendment as if these were travesties that 
prevented the Madisonian viewpoint from, from prevailing. Well, there are amendments. We passed them. Uh, you know, the, it's really difficult to pass amendments. We decided after the Civil War to radically expand the federal government's power. We decided again in the progressive area, era to pretty dramatically expand the federal power. Those are choices we've made. Now, if we want to go back and undo those things, we can do it. But let's look at the Constitution we have now in terms of deciding whether the federal government has the power to do the things that they are doing. And in most cases, I think it does. Uh, and the question is, you know, are there norms, like the norm against unfunded mandates, the norm against kind of commandeering that the Supreme Court has said, that, that control it in useful ways? And I think there should be. Yes, sir. of the federal role, particularly in funding local government programs that people perceive the states not being well suited or failing to meet needs. And that mayors started coming here to Washington for their money, led to what more recently we've been debating in uh, whether there should be earmarks in appropriations. Um, and oftentimes local government seeks those earmarks in order to receive funds for their jurisdiction. Is earmark reform something that... Um, can be helpful in this federalist deba federalism debate. Anybody want to? It, it, this is a little different from the judicially decided decisions. It's a, one of the practical federalism questions um, that we wrestle with up here in Congress. Where, where does the money go and who gets it? Um, and I suppose the real question is if, if there's either formulas or less money through Washington, does that have a beneficial effect in, in strengthening the states? Michael, you want to take a stab at that? Yeah, uh, you may not like this answer, but I'll give it anyhow. To my mind, the problem and the scandal in Washington is not earmarks or even corruption. The scandal is all the stuff that's legal. So long as you hand money over to local and state governments, you're going to have the kind of federalism uh, that we do. Uh, if you want to give states more authority and more genuine autonomy in the sense of responsibility for their own affairs, you'd have to reform the programs that are now programs for state and local governments and give the money directly to individuals. 
I myself am a huge fan of Social Security, precisely because the Social Security system is the only system, the only federal distribution system of any size that gives the money directly to individual citizens and completely bypasses state and local governments. You get far more accuracy, and if the federal government has a comparative advantage at anything at all, it's distributing huge gobs of money. It's very good at that, and that is what it ought to be doing. As a celebrated member of this body, Senator Moynihan, always used to say, if we want to redistribute money, I have an idea. Let's redistribute money, but don't channel it through all these local and state governments because that has to be graft and misdirection. I actually want to say that I agree with you that earmarks are a significant factor in diminishing the role of the states in the political system, and their reform, I think, would have a positive effect, as would looking at these federal condition spending bills and unfunded mandates. All those have a corrosive effect upon the states. I also wanted to note that there's no question. I never said that the states don't have authority over things like divorces and petty crime. What I'm saying is that the current position of the states was never envisioned by the framers, and I think when you look at it, they are secondary to their authority. They are constantly doing the bidding of Congress in order to get highways built, to get money for the schools, and it's because Congress is taking all of this money, sucking the money out of the state, and then giving it back to the states with conditions. I don't think the framers ever anticipated that type of relationship. As for amending the Constitution, we haven't gotten rid of federalism. It's true. We went to direct election of senators. That wasn't a vote on federalism. That was a vote because we felt that it was better to directly elect senators, and when we talked about income tax, we decided that the federal government should have income tax, but as far as I know, federalism still remains one of the core values of the Constitution. We haven't amended to get rid of that part of it. There was another question. I've got time for one quick one. I'd like to direct this to the audience. Obviously, the question for you comes from first understanding of human nature. You were talking about how you would prefer that we model our programs on the Social Security system, and you talked about how the state governments come up here and make a party out of receiving money, and then they go back and make a party, and then they distribute it, but don't we as Congress up here do the same exact thing, and how do you get over when discussing federalism and who should be in control and voting when the nature of man is self-advantage? Let me summarize very quickly. It's essentially the political choice question. Isn't the problem of self-seeking that you mentioned, Michael, in state legislatures equally true here in Congress? Yes, that is, of course, true, and I alluded to this earlier. I mean, as Cy said, the Madisonian expectation was that the states would be much more faction-ridden than the federal legislature. I think by now you have to say that, no, we have the same expectations at every level. Yeah, that's, of course, true, except what you have to do is, as Madison said, you have to figure out ways 
to introduce sort of competition into the system and mechanisms that sort of stabilize the system against all the temptations that you outline. And I submit that, to my mind, a lot of those mechanisms have fallen apart, and we now face the hard part and the hard question of how do we rebuild them. The question was, does anybody have a suggestion or answer on that? For two reasons. One, we're out of time, and two, you've asked a really good larger question. I'm going to recommend that the society have a panel, a follow-up panel on exactly that, how to deal with the problem of self-interest among public legislators. Thank you, everybody, for coming. Thank you to the panelists. Thank you to Senator Sessions. Let me ask all of the staff members up here, if you have friends or colleagues who you think would be interested in these, please urge them to give us their e-mail address. We'll contact them for future events and appreciate you all coming. Thank you. Thank you.